The desire of Titus Women is to invite women around the world to know Jesus as their Savior, Center, and Source. May God guide and encourage you through this message. I want us to look at two passages of Scripture tonight. I think I might even try to make a case, if I had the time, that they represent perhaps the two most important passages of Scripture that we have in relation to the cross of Christ. The first of these is from the Old Testament. We will not read it all, but I would like to read six verses of the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. You will remember the prophecy. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The second passage is found in Paul's second Corinthian letter from chapter 5, reading from verse 14 of that great letter. For the love of Christ constrains us. Because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore from now on we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We then, as workers together with him, plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. 
For he says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. One of the very obvious things about Christianity is that Christians are interested in history. All you have to do is take a look, rather casual look at the Bible, and you will find that better than half of it is simply narrative history, an account of what has happened in the course of human history. And if you look at a good portion of the rest of it, like the prophets, you will find that basically what those books are, are an interpretation of what is taking place in time and space in history. But the reality is that history is a problem for you and for me, for any thinking Christian, if you will simply look at the century of which we are a part. Was there ever a bloodier hundred years than the last hundred years? The century began with the First World War, and then we got Hitler and the Holocaust, then the Second World War, Nagasaki, Hiroshima, and then we got Korea and Vietnam and Rwanda and the American abortion racket. All you have to do is look at the 20th century and you know that history for us is a problem. Now, one of the reasons we find it a problem is because we believe that God, the God that we worship, is the one who started it. And we believe that the God whom we worship is the one who's in control of it. And we believe that the God who started it and is in control of it is without rival or competitor. Now, I don't care what you say about the biblical teachings on the devil. He's there, and hell is a reality. But God reigns, and Satan is no problem for God. He reigns, and he reigns alone and without rival. And Satan has already been conquered. But the history that we know is still a mess. And we believe God started it. He's sovereign over it. He runs it without rival and competitor, and he's very good, very good, and history, what a mess. All you have to do is realize that the Christian believes that history didn't start the way it is now, because you read the book of Genesis and you will find that the creation that we heard sung about a few minutes ago, you will remember that when God finished the whole process, he looked at what he had made and said, it is good, very good. You will remember that the first scene that we get is of a garden. Now, you know enough about a garden to know that it is a place of order. Normally, it is a place of beauty, and it is a place of plenty and provision. And all you have to do is look at human history since, and it's disorder, to say the least. And what can be uglier than the daily news? And it is a place not only of chaos and of ugliness, but think of how many people there are in the world who starve to death. 
Now, we believe that history isn't going to end the way it is now. It's going to end more like it began. Because if you read the book of Revelation, it's going to end in a city. But it's different from our cities because it's a city that doesn't come out of our sinfulness. It's a city that comes down from God out of heaven. And there's no dirt there. There's no filth. There's no hostility, no animosity, no alienation. It is a place where there is no pain, there is no suffering, there is no death, there is no graffiti. It is a place of beauty and joy and peace, and God himself reigns among his people, and it is exactly all that we could ever ask for. So we get the biblical story, say it started okay, and it's going to end up magnificently, but what about this mess in between? You know... Uh, you would think that it must have been some indescribable evil of such tragic enormity that something happened that laid a curse across time and space so that every moment, every spot, and everything in it was defiled, contaminated, and distorted. But the interesting thing is that Scripture says that what caused all this mess was an incredibly simple thing. It wasn't some violation of some great moral commandment. Do you know what it was? If you read the Scripture, it was simply the reorientation of two individuals' lives. Two very ordinary human beings like you and me, decided to reorient their lives. There is a sense in which you could say all that they did was simply turn their faces. They turned their faces away from the God from whom they came, their source, and they turned their attention to themselves. Now, if you don't hear anything else I say this evening, I hope you will remember this. It comes from Luther. Luther had a very interesting definition of sin. He uh, used the Latin, I don't know any Latin, but I know the phrase, cor incurvitus ad se. Now, cor is same Latin root, the root from which we get the word coronary, because core is the word for heart. Incurvitus is exactly in English, except you put the preposition after the verb instead of before. Incurvitus means curved in, and the obset means toward oneself. So Martin Luther said that sin is simply a heart curved in upon itself. Because, you see, when God made us in the beginning, Adam and Eve, He made two creatures whose hearts were curved out toward God and toward each other. And they decided they wanted to rearrange the situation. And so they turned their attention toward themselves first and each one individually first Eve to Eve, and Adam to Adam, and Eve and Adam to Adam and Eve, and last of all, to God, 
It was just simply a reorientation. Now you say, uh, just simply to want my way and turn my way toward me, can that cause all of the havoc of this world? You know, not too long ago, I was speaking in a Presbyterian church during Holy Week, and I was hosted by a man who is a microbiologist, a very brilliant microbiologist and a very devout Christian. He's the guy that identified Legionnaire's disease. But he said to me as we rode to the airport, he said, I wish you'd pray for me because I have a question at times about my vocation. He does things like digs down in the ground 200 feet and finds the microbes that have never lived on the surface that like sludge. And so he makes them reproduce and cleans up the environment. He was honored recently for an investigation of the possibility of using microbes to identify the location of landmines, one of the greatest curses in the world. But he said, we do some good things, but he said, do you know we've got it now to where we can put a drop of fluid in a man's hand and in 40 minutes, every major organ in his body will be dissolved. He said, we've got it to where you can put enough of that stuff in one man's pocket to wipe out the city of New York. Now, uh, so he was saying, should I spend my life doing this kind of stuff? I get ready to quit, and every time I get ready to change, there's something that says, but Christians need to be in the middle of this kind of thing so that they can find some way to answer these kind of problems. But you and I live in a world that is evil, and God says it all started when I became interested in me instead of in Him and others. Isaiah knew that a long time before Luther came along, because he said, All we like sheep have gone astray. We just simply followed what we wanted. We've turned everyone to his own way, and that's the definition of sin. And as we turned to our own way, the only cure for it was the cross of Christ and the death of God's only Son. Now, uh, you say, could that simple shift of posture created all this mess? Well, let me ask you something. From whom was it that they turned? You see, when we turn to ourselves, we turn from the one who is the source of all light. Just think of the Scriptures. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And when God's Son came, He said to us, I am the light of the world. And if you don't know him, you will find yourself walking in darkness. Now, you know, if you turn your back upon the light and begin to walk away from the light, you know enough to know that the shadows will begin to fall across your pathway. And if you walk far enough, you will be in deep darkness. And do you know what Jesus called hell? Jesus called hell outer darkness. The guy has just walked too far away from the source of light. Now, uh, 
John plays with that. It's interesting, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And then he tells about how the temple and the Roman soldiers brought lanterns and torches to find him. Do you know how dark our darkness is? That we need lanterns and torches to find the light of the world. Now, when we turn away from God, the shadows begin to fall. But He's not only the source of all light, He is the source of all truth. He is the way, the truth, and the light. And the opposite of truth in this case is simply delusion and illusion. Because you see, truth is certainty and security. You know, as I was thinking about this, I thought of something I had never thought about before. It's interesting how we use language and never even think about it. It's so much a part of us. But one day, about five years ago, I thought, I wonder where the word true came from and where we got the word true and truth. So I pulled down my big Oxford Unabridged Dictionary, and I found that the English word true comes from an ancient Indo-European word for a tree. And so I found myself perplexed. How do you get from tree to true? And as I mulled over that, I thought about those two old oak trees in our front yard. Six months out of the year, I love them. They're beautiful and provide shade. And six months out of the year, I hate them because they're the kind who drop their leaves one at a time over a six-month period. But you know, the one thing about those trees that I have known and never questioned Never once in all the years that we've lived there have I ever wondered where those trees would be the next day because they never move. You can count on them. It's truth. It's security. Stands. Doesn't change on you. Now, God is the unchanging one. And when you turn away from Him... You get into exactly what Zacharias was talking to us about Sunday when you know you get in the traffic and everything is moving. You don't know where you are, but that you're moving. Everything has shifted. Now, one of the things I found to my delight was that not only do we get the word true from the Indo-European word tree, but we get the word trim. And it doesn't matter whether you're thinking about a beautiful girl or whether you're thinking about a sailboat against the horizon. The trimness of it is aesthetically incredibly pleasing. And truth and beauty go together. And when you lose the truth, you always lose beauty too. And so when you turn away from Him, you get our illusion we hope it's right, we think it's right, we find it's wrong, our delusion, and you get all the ugliness that goes with it. But now, He's not only the source of light and of truth, He is the source of everything that is sacred. Because, you see, He is the Holy One. And that's what sacredness is, sanctity. It is, comes from that which is holy. One of the clearest things in Scripture is that there is nothing that exists that has any holiness in it of itself except the Lord God. 
And if anything is to be holy, it will only be holy because it is in right relation to the source of all holiness, the Holy One. And do you know there is something within us that we can't live without something being sacred? Did you know you can't even run the mafia without ethics? You can't run the mafia without morality. You can't run the mafia if one mafia lord lies to another. And if one mafia lord lies to another, somebody dies because you can't run the mafia without the mafia guys being honest with each other. It's built into us. We can't live without something being sacred. You know, I think the angriest person I ever met was an adulterer who had just found that his wife had been unfaithful to him. And he, with a great exasperation, cried out, Isn't there anything sacred left in the world? And we turn our backs upon him, and profanation is the result. Everything loses its value and its sanctity. And so we create our own imaginary idols to try to give some value because we've lost the source of all ultimate value. But not only is He the source of light and of truth and of the sacred, and you know at this point I always feel like I've sort of got my hands tied behind me when I try to say it, because we have so demeaned and diluted the word love that when we use it, we think of something that isn't love. We think of sentiment and pleasure and happiness and niceness. But you see, love is an honest concern for the other person more than for yourself. If you want to know what biblical love is, love is when you get like Christ, who cared enough about us that He left heaven and came not simply to the earth, He came to a cross and died for us. And there, you see, one who cares more about somebody else than he does himself, that is the biblical understanding of love. And you see, when you lose Him, what do you have? We turn this way and we get very concerned about us. And so when we say to one another, not knowing God without God, I love you, what we mean is, I want to use you for my pleasure. So we lose the very thing that our beings cry out for perhaps the most. And then we cannot finish without saying, when you turn away from Him, He's the source of all life. Everything that lives has its origin in His goodwill and in His choice. And when you cut yourself away from Him, it's like the deep-sea diver who cuts his own air hose. It's like the person who is desperately sick and he throws away his antibiotics. Because, you see, the only life we can know originates in Him. And when we turn our back upon Him, and turn our direction toward us, that is the beginning of death. And so death marks every day and every sight and every event 
in human history because we just simply turned our faces except we turned them instead of from him we turned them this way now uh, if you will look at scripture the scripture is very clear that that is the biblical explanation of human history between the fall when Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden and the end when the new Jerusalem comes down from God out of heaven. And the thing about it is, there's nobody who's undefiled. Every person you have ever met is self-centered. Every person you've ever met began his life. The fall, the curse that came, we're turned this way. Because, you see, the relationship between us and Him has been broken. And the magnetic pull of self-interest has turned us in on ourselves. And we have no way to break out of that self-interest. Now, how was God to solve His problem? He created this world, made you and me. He made us for love. He made us for joy. He made us for peace. He made us for righteousness. He made us for holiness. He made us for worship. He made us for praise. He made us for Himself. And yet we're oriented cord in curvitus odset. Now, how's He going to turn it around? One of the things that's interesting to me is oftentimes we think, well, He's all-powerful. He can just zap them down there and do it. But did you know that not even God can solve the world's problems in heaven? Did you know that the sin in your heart and mine cannot be solved from God's throne? The only place the problem can be solved is where the problem is. And the problem's not in heaven. The problem's down here in us. So how under the sun can God solve the problem that's in us? Well, if you'll read the Scripture carefully enough, you will find that God said there's no other way. We've got to become one of them. <laughs> We've got to get down there in the middle of where the problem is. So we can't stay in heaven. One of us has got to go down to the earth. And one of us has got to get his hands messed up right in the middle of the evil that's there. And so the Eternal Son said, okay, that's my assignment. And he came down here and became one of us. Did you notice the end of, of 2 Corinthians 5 where it says, He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we who know no righteousness might become the very righteousness of God? That's the mystery of it. But do you know where that change had to take place? It had to take place in the God-man. One of us, that process had to be turned around. You will notice in Isaiah the passage says, All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way. And the Hebrew says, And Yahweh has caused to meet in him the iniquity of us all. He took our sin into himself and turned that process around. And because of what happened in the cross of Calvary, in the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, a reversal took place that can come and extend to me and save me. 
Now let me ask you, what does it mean to be saved? You know, for a long time I thought being saved meant you didn't have to go to hell. I'd be saved from hell. I began to realize that, yeah, when you get saved from hell, you get saved from the judgment. But do you know, that's not what salvation is. That's salvation. That's not salvation from the problem. That's salvation from the consequences of the problem. And do you know, we have spread to a world the fact that Christ will save us from the consequences, and we have hidden from the world the fact that God in Christ can save us from the problem that causes the consequences. He can save us from sin. He can save us from that core incurvitus obsess where I am oriented toward me. He can set me free to where I can be oriented toward Him and oriented toward others. And when I get there, I'll say, for heaven's sake, this is the thing I was made for. Now, how does He get me turned inside out? Because that's what He's got to do. And if he doesn't get me turned inside out here, how under the sun am I going to live in heaven? Because in heaven there's no selfishness. (laughs) You see, heaven's the place where it's all other-oriented stuff. And if I got there with my sinfulness, I'd find it was a very uncomfortable place, and I'd defile the whole shooting match. So how can I get clean so that I can live with the one who cares more about me than he does himself. How can I get to the place where I care in response to that kind of self-sacrificial love? Well, let me say, uh, the Scriptures are very interesting on that. I think that that's the reason the world is in such a mess. (laughs) And I've come to love the mess of human history. Wouldn't it be horrible if the world worked right when it's all wrong? If the world's wrong, it ought to work wrong. And it works wrong. (laughs) You listen to the news in the morning. Read the newspaper in the morning. We're out of touch with our source, and so God says, it can't work right. And so he puts enough trouble in the world to where we say, isn't there a better way than this? Do you know we are so sinful that nobody ever came to God except when God appealed to his sin and his selfishness. (laughs) God has to play the game our way to get to us and to get our attention. F.B. Meyer was sitting in a group of Christian leaders in Britain. There were, I think if I remember correctly, 12 in the group. And he said, I'd just like to ask a question. What was it that turned you to Christ? Let's just go around the room. Every one of these major, noble, upright, gracious Christian leaders, with one exception, said, I didn't want to go to hell. That's core in curvitus, I'd say, isn't it? <laughs> That's a heart interested in itself. 
And God stoops to meet us in our selfish-centeredness and in our sin. And so, He makes life work so it's miserable enough that we say there must be a better way. It may be a drug addiction. A guy who hits the absolute bottom has a memory of somebody who's testified to him somewhere and says, I've tried all the recovery programs and they don't work. Do you suppose what my grandmother told me could be true? That Jesus Christ could help me. I came home one day, walked in the living room, and heard a male voice mumbling. I thought he was drunk. And I thought, what's a drunk doing in my house? So I slipped around through the dining room where I could look into the family room where the sound was coming from and find out what was going on without being observed. And when I got where I could see, here was Elsie down on her knees at the sofa and down on the knees at a stuffed chair, a 40-year-old professional man sobbing his heart out to God because he had wasted a profession, a life, hundreds of thousands of dollars, and he said, I've tried everything else. My grandmother told me that Christ could help me. And he'd come to a 70-some-year-old woman to get him to Christ. Do you know he hasn't touched any drugs since that day? I don't know about you, but it'd be a horrible thing if our world didn't work wrong. And it's wrong. And so, it may be pain, it may be our marriage doesn't work right. You love her, but it's everything's going to pieces, you say. Can't somebody help him? He says, well... Yeah, <laughs> if you give me a chance, I can turn you around so you care more about her and turn her around so she cares more about you and you'll find out what heaven is. It may be just the emptiness of life without God because we're made for Him. I knelt the other night at an altar in front of a man in his 50s he said, I've been very successful in the business world, but a fellow sat down with me the other day and spent an hour doing a Bible study with me. And at the end of the Bible study, he said to me, success is one thing and significance is another. Are you going to be satisfied with success and end your life without significance? And he said, I'm ready to change my way of life. I'm ready to change my business. I'd like to do something that counts before I die. We're made for it. Okay? When it goes wrong enough, we turn to Him. And when we turn, we find He turns us inside out. He puts an otherness in us. And that's an evidence of Himself. I had a friend, Australian boy, living in the outback, raising marijuana. Now, you know, a lot of us, we talk about the holiness message and Wesleyan stuff and all that. We talk about it almost as if somebody's got a corner on this. Do you know nobody has a corner on this? Do you know that any person who walks with Christ is going to find inside him sometime, somewhere, a hunger to be set free from the depths, the deep, profound self-centeredness in him? 
self-interest that's there that defiles us and contaminates us. You know, one of the things I love is you can find it in the devotional literature of the centuries. He was an Anglican. He surely wasn't a member of the holiness movement. But he wrote a hymn we sang, Breathe on me, breath of God. Fill me with life anew. Now, at the moment, I've forgotten the next verse of that thing. Let me find it here. Breathe on me, breath of God. Until First of all, breathe on me, breath of God, until my heart is pure. Until with thee I will one will to do and to endure. Breathe on me, breath of God, till I am wholly thine. Until this earthly part of me glows with thy fire divine. Now, do you notice, I wish you had it in front of you. He says, my heart isn't clean. Can you make it pure? Breathe, O Holy Spirit, until you've purified my heart. That's better than any gift you can ever get. Purity of heart. You get a character like Christ. Until with thee, I will, one will. There's no division in me anymore. I don't want to be divided. I want to love you with my whole heart. He says, breathe on me, breath of God, till I am wholly thine. Nothing else is good enough. I love you enough. I want to be wholly yours. Now, he wasn't a second blessing holiness preacher. You know who he was? He was a professor in Oxford University and was a high Anglican. But he had a heart just like yours and just like mine. And he met God, and he wanted God to give him all of that Christ died to give him. Now let me give you this one. Make me a captive, Lord. I don't want to be free anymore. (laughs) Make me a captive, Lord, and then I will be free. Force me to render up my sword, the sign of my autonomy, and I shall conqueror be. If I lose on this one, I'll win. I sink in life's alarms when by myself I stand. Imprison me within thine arms. You know the only person that's free is one who's imprisoned in the arms of Jesus Christ. Imprison me within thine arms and strong shall be my hand. Now, you never attended a holiness camp meeting. He was a Scottish Presbyterian preacher who was brilliant enough that he was invited to give the Gifford Lectures, which is the highest intellectual honor that can ever come to a British, an English-speaking person, or anybody as far as the British university system is concerned. But his eyesight was so poor that he said, I can't do justice to the lectureship, and so he turned the honor down. But he's the one who wrote to us, More love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. (laughs) We're not talking about a doctrinal distinctive of a movement inside the Christian church. We're talking about the need of every human heart. Now, you may not have gotten close enough to him and lived with him long enough to feel your need, but I'll tell you what will happen. 
When I throw a ball up in the air, I know what's going to happen. It's going to come back down. I'll tell you about you because I know about me, and we're all alike. Only difference between you and me is I'm either where you are, where you were, where you ought to be, and you're either where I am, where I was, or where I ought to be. We're all alike. There's no difference in us. And every one of us were made to be oriented toward Him where He's first. Seek ye the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Seek ye the Lord with all your heart. Put Him first. Make Him Lord. Get your life oriented right toward Him to where His will reigns. And do you know what you'll find? You'll find you like what you don't like. No, let me change the English of that. You'll find you love what you didn't like. you say, I don't want His way. I want my way. And you get your own way and you'll say, this is lousy. And if you turn and find His way, you'll say, this is what I was made for. And you'll be free. Now I want to ask you if you're there. (laughs) Have you found that kind of freedom in Him? Do you know that's what He died to do for you? You know, I'd hate to come up into the judgment and stand before Him and have Him look at me and say, I died to do more for you than you let me do. You know, some way or other, we think that a little bit of grace is good and a lot of grace is bad. Do you know the grace you don't have is better than the grace you've got? The grace I don't have is better than the grace I do have. It gets better as you go. And the more you've got, the better it is. Why don't we open up our souls and say, God, come, I want all you've got from it. And I don't want any division down here. I want to be oriented wholly toward you to where you're the center. Seek first the reign of God and His righteousness. And everything else will be what it ought to be. Are you there? Now, I just want to say to you, you can get there. You can't get yourself there. (laughs) All salvation is from Him. And if you're to be saved from sin, He's going to have to do it. And the thing you need to do is get down on your knees and say, God, I need to have you do some more work in me. I want you to set me free from me. I want you to make me wholly yours. And do you know there's something in the blood of Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit that can set you free from you?